0: So last week we um, began doing a bit on uh, thinking about some of the wisdom teachings from the book of James, from the Sermon on the Mount, from the book of Proverbs about the wealthy and the poor, and um, we decided to kind of continue on that conversation a little bit this week. Um, If... I think what I want to do is... um, just refer you back very quickly to some of these texts that we use to kind of set our agenda. First out of James 5, you remember this uh, text, Come now you rich people, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted, your clothes are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have rusted and their rust will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure for the last days. Listen, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud cry out and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous one who does not resist you. Or James chapter 2, which is an admonition against acts of favoritism on behalf of the rich. That the rich person comes in, you give them the honored seat the poor comes in, usually say, sit here at my feet, and he says, by by such acts of favoritism do you dishonor God. And then he closes out, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? Or?" out of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, do not, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If, then, the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness! No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And then we looked at quite a number of uh, verses from the Proverbs that speak of things as varied as um, at least three (coughs) texts in the book of Proverbs that denounce the practice of of, uh, unjust balances. to defraud those who are purchasing from you. Uh, Texts about uh, we dishonor our maker when we oppress the poor. Or texts about how generosity uh, leads to an abundance of life. Um, Also texts like um, he who is um, lazy uh, has the leaky roof. And he who is um, so lazy, what was the one, I I can't remember the verse, the one about the guy who, uh, the lazy who gets his dish, hand into the dish, and cannot even get it to his mouth, this uh, brilliant picture of, of one who is lazy. So what I want to do today is I want to take a few minutes to set up um, a, a suggestion for a way in which Christians can contribute to these conversations that I think, generally speaking, I find lacking, <coughs> and then let's open it up to see what you think about it, Okay and then Laura's going to come back around for the last part and give us some suggested practices that we might experiment with some in, in, in light of these sorts of things. Here's, here's the thing I want to suggest, that very typically, uh, and, and again, I'm going to be speaking in broad brush strokes, and uh, but I think that are somewhat uh, quite true to the degree that they're discussed. Hopefully one of these will work. Good. On the... Um, on the right, we have a strong emphasis upon individual work. <coughs> that um, work leads to wealth. Uh, that ingenuity, creativity, and the like leads to wealth. Uh, and that laziness, work leads to wealth that laziness leads to poverty. Um, We have a fear and a pushback against uh, governmental power and governmental overreach. On the left, we have an emphasis upon the importance of systemic systemic, um, a pushback against systemic injustices and the importance then of systemic solutions. We have uh, generally, uh, in many ways, a lack of discussion about individual virtues and vices with regard to economics and we have a fear of corporate power. <coughs> Those seem fair enough so far? That seem fair enough stereotypes so far? Then, typically what happens, I think, is that we get convinced we have to choose which one is more right. And in the partisan world in which we live, we have all sorts of echo chambers that can, that can reinforce one of those, whichever one we happen to be most attuned to. And it's important, I think, to note that um, social media, the algorithms around social media are attuned to giving you what you want. And what they know, you know, Google, and Facebook knows what I think probably better than I know what I think. And they serve that up to me. Um, As a way to to illustrate this very quickly, uh, some years ago I was reading a story about um, uh, the way Target, as a case study, decided that if they could get young people, young married couples, who are expecting Babies to get in the habit of stopping into Target before they had the baby. That then, that w- there was a huge financial return on that because they're in the habit of running in there. So they run in there to get diapers and oh, well, I got to get some milk and I need some bread and I need some sandwich sandwich stuff. And all of a sudden, the return on that marketing to people who were pregnant was very, very great return on investment. So then what they did was that they started studying what people purchase and they create these algorithms for marketing so that they began reaching out to people and so they start getting the advertisements about need a baby bed or need (coughs) to stock up on diapers and that starts coming to them in the mail. One day a father calls into the local target and he's furious because Target has just emailed his 17-year-old daughter all of this stuff about needing diapers and all that sort of stuff, and he lets the manager have it, and so this is insulting, what are you doing? The manager apologizes all over himself, I'm sorry, I apologize. The manager, being a person of good faith, called the father back about six months later. and said, so I'm calling to follow up on that conversation we had, I just want to apologize to you again, I'm sorry that that happened, that was inappropriate, I apologize. And the father said, no, it's you I owe an apology to. My daughter was pregnant, and I didn't know it. (coughs) I think that we must understand that's the way our world of information is working. And so if we find ourselves over here, we're going to get the echo of this. ourselves over here, we're going to get the echo of this, because there's lots of power in the echo, and there's lots of power in marketing to us, depending upon where they find us to be. Now, here's what I want to suggest, is that a Christian perspective on questions about wealth and poverty must step back and say, you know what, it's it's absolutely (coughs) right that if you're lazy, just like the book of Proverbs says, then there's consequences for that. Consequences for you, consequences for your family, consequences for the community you're a part of, and they're not pretty. And sometimes, you deserve to be hungry if you are refusing to lift a finger to contribute to the goods of your family or your community. And moreover, sometimes some real goods come from you being creative and working hard and using ingenuity. Real goods come from that, and that's good stuff. And moreover, there's actually a lot of reasons to be fearful of the overreach of governmental power and the squandering of wealth. This is a very long biblical tradition, right? You remember what Samuel said? to the people when they come to him and say, we want a king so we can be like other nations? Anybody know one of the reasons Samuel says you don't want that? Because he says, look, if you get a king, he's going to take 10% of your land, of your money, of your property, and conscript your boys. 10%. Oh, to have Samuel's problem, right? (laughs) Or even before Samuel, there's the problem of Pharaoh. And what we see with Pharaoh is Pharaoh overreaches, 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 and exalts in his own power, so much so that he sees himself as a god, one of the gods. There's good reason, and there's lots of historical precedent for realizing that the powerful... Especially the powerful with state power. not a, No, take the especially off. The power, and we see this in cases of state power, governmental power, monarchical power, often arrogate to themselves a power that's not theirs to be had. That's all true. And I think that if we're over here and we can't hear that being said, In my mind, it's like, well, you're not quite totally being true to Scripture, for sure, and maybe you're not being honest. At the same time, the Bible has a whole lot to say about systemic injustices and systemic solutions to systemic injustices. Um, One of the reasons Samuel was so frustrated with them. At root, the reason that they wanted a king, but God says it's not about rejecting you, Sam, it's about rejecting me, the the rule of God, but that the monarchical power, and we see this foreshadowed or reflected back upon in the book of Deuteronomy, does overreach and does create mechanisms of power that are oppressive. But let us not be so naive as to assume that only kings and presidents and prime ministers are the only ones tempted to the overweening power that oppresses others. Let us not be so naive as not to be aware of the fact that corporate power, corporate wealth, the military-industrial complex, the criminal justice system that's rooted in profit these days, that all of these things are corporate and systemic mechanisms of power that are just as capable of oppression as governmental powers are capable of oppression. And the Bible is very clear about the mechanisms of oppression and the mechanisms of power that press down the poor. And thus, for example, the Old Testament has the mother of all systemic corrections in the the practice of Jubilee, right? In an agrarian society, land is the primary source of capital, the means of sustaining wealth. (coughs) And the Jubilee practice was every 50 years, we take all this land and it gets redistributed again to the original clans and families from whence it came. Now you want to talk about socialism? There's you a bit of socialism, but it wasn't socialism in service to the state. It was socialism, a form of socialism, a form of corporate attention to systemic mechanisms of wealth that cared about the people who were on the bottom. And it was a systemic correction to tend to the people that were on the bottom, because the prophets were very clear about the fact that those who have more have the mechanism to get more than the people who don't. And so the prophet, for example, in Isaiah chapter 5, will make fun of the man who buys land, and then he buys more land, and then he buys more land, and then he buys more land, and he makes fun of him and says, you're now the only person in the village. See, that's key, the way he puts that, right? Because what happens with this sort of unbridled pursuit of individual greed is the loss of community and the loss of village, the loss of people. So in in my mind, if I'm over here and I can't hear what these people over here are saying, it seems to me that I'm being untrue to scripture and quite possibly not being honest. So what I'm trying to suggest is um, We Christians, if we will be Christian, and Jews, if they will be Jews, good Jews, we actually have something incredible to contribute to the social mess in which we find ourselves in Western culture right now. (coughs) But we cannot do it if we make ourselves simply a representative of this or simply a representative of this. We have to be more creative than that. We have to be more thoughtful than that. We have to question our own kind of slogans and the ease with which we dismiss those over there or dismiss those over there. And we have to find these creative sorts of ways and creative sorts of solutions that can say, yeah, there are problems with, this side sees particular problems and this side sees particular problems and work at them. And then the last thing I'll say about it is this, Um, let us not, as well I would suggest, Let us not fall prey to any form of idealistic utopianism. And what I mean by that is this. um, We Christians know that we live between the times of the inauguration of the kingdom of God and the consummation of the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God has begun that the power of resurrection has broken into human history in the resurrection of Christ, but we know that death still is around. We know the war has won, been won, but that it is not over. That being the case, that all is not submitted to the kingdom of God, means that before the consummation of the kingdom, there is no utopian idealistic system. So the best we can do are ad hoc solutions to the problems that are right in front of us. So what does that mean practically? It means that if, if you have utopians on the left with an idealistic notion of a socialist state that they are missing the theological claim that the Kingdom of God has not yet come in fullness And that that idealistic notion of a socialist state is overlooking the brokenness of human history. If on this side, you have an idealistic notion of the freedom of the market, then that's a naivete and an idealistic utopianism that is refusing to take account of the depths of human greed and the power of human greed and the systemic ways that human greed can do vast devastation to a community. So what, what I'm suggesting then is when we come to these issues <coughs> that we keep looking at the whole of the biblical witness, not proof texting, not getting something that will support me in my rightness or my leftness, but always looking for a constructive Christian witness to the situation in which we find ourselves. So let me, let me stop there. and um, Thoughts, feedback, questions? Frustration?
1: Yes, Dr. Leo. My concern is that we are now driven by an oligarchy where very powerful men control the government. I, I uh, look at the situation where a president yeah. named yeah. Jerusalem, uh, recognized Jerusalem as the uh, capital of Israel. And then I heard that Sheldon Addison <coughs> gave his campaign over $20 million. And then you have evangelical Christians that believe that the end of times will not come until Israel, the land is returned, Jerusalem is returned to them. And so, you know, you have this pseudo-theology and then you have very powerful men like the Koch brothers and the uh, uh, other powerful rich men that are driving the political or physical policy, and <coughs> that, which I feel is detrimental to people like me that, that get up and go to work every day mm-hmm. and try to make a living. Uh,
0: yeah, yes, um, and, and I think from a Christian perspective that those kinds of questions are the kinds of questions that certainly are very important questions for us to be asking, right, are, it is is what goes in the name of democracy and oligarchy instead. Um, those are terribly important questions for us to be grappling with. So thank you. Yes, sir. Somebody else?
2: Does the, if what I'm understanding correctly, you're saying that we should not look that Christianity can solve either one of those problems. Like, it can't. If, if you could replace. If we try to make a Christian government, the people on the left are still going to fear that government, even if it is Christian, and if it's more of it. Like I feel like that you're you're challenging us <coughs> to be separate, like not from the right or the left. So how do we live in this world with the mechanisms of still going to work and making money? I mean, like we have to
0: have to do those things, correct? Sure. Yeah. I do think that that's a a helpful, important question. I think that um, biblically, um, biblically, the Jewish and Christian theology in, in the Bible is not first and foremost individualistic. Um, Since the Enlightenment we think primarily in individualistic terms and that's infected our religion with things like you know what the gospel is all about is a personal relationship with Jesus even though the, the phrase personal relationship with Jesus is nowhere in the Bible. The Bible always talks in terms of people. It talks in terms of the people of Israel, the people that is the church, the kingdom of God. The Bible values the individuals individual as much or more than any other social philosophy. But the individual is not the place at which we start. It is God and God's work among a people in the world and participating in that people allows us to flourish as human beings in ways we couldn't otherwise. (coughs) And so it's the focus upon the people of God and especially in the New Testament, a focus upon the people of God that are not trying to be emperor's and presidents and prime ministers, but are being the people of God, embodying the way of Christ in the world. So that's the first place we start. So how do we, as how do we as Christian people, embody this sort of stuff? And there's lots of creative ways. Lots of Christian people are embodying this kinds of, you know, alternate way in the world. And a lot of them at Otter Creek, I think. Um. Second that does still leave us the opportunity to bear witness to the powers that be, governmental powers that be, in whatever way we think we're called to minister to that without thinking that we have to take control of everything. So a lot of times it's by simply telling the truth, right? You take for example the civil rights movement in the United States, Uh, the civil rights movement, Dr. King, lots of other leaders, they were savvy about their use of political power and their political power connections which I do not begrudge them. But the first thing that they did was they told the truth and they told the truth in a public way so people could not not pay attention. And that was the fundamental gift they gave to American history, I think, in in telling the truth, right? And so there's lots of things about both of these that we can start trying to learn how to tell the truth. But if we're just camped out on the right or we're just camped out on the left, no one is going to pay any attention to us except the people who are already with us. (laughs) And if we want to find a way to talk to, to a larger world and a larger audience, we have to do it in such a way so that people will say oh, well I never thought about that. There are a lot of people of goodwill over here and there are a lot of people of goodwill over here. But if we can't find a way to speak to them in such a way through our lives or through our words in a way so that they say, oh, I hadn't thought about that, then we're not. I don't think we'll get very far. Thank you. Somebody else? Questions, comments?
3: Uh, I don't know if I'm going to articulate this uh, effectively, but I was thinking this week about the conversation last week, and... Can
0: y'all hear? Okay, in the back.
3: As you know, as as we think about the the story of the Bible and the key messages in the Bible, that when we we look at grace, and I struggle with this big time. When we look at grace and love, those aren't predicated on you get what you deserve. It's it's sort of all things equal to everyone. You love your enemy. You love those who love. Uh, grace. You know, we have a God who gives me grace that I do not deserve. Right. But when it comes to and and I, I see I. I don't struggle with those concepts that I give grace to those who don't deserve it and I give love to those who don't deserve it. But I str- like when it comes to my money, all of a sudden, it's like, well, there's a caveat, right? Like, And I struggle with that tension of, of folks deserve my grace and love, which are way more important than my money. But all of a sudden, I come to my money, and I feel that tension of, well, did you really, you know, are you lazy? Like, do, are you working? Like, do you really deserve it? And it's it's just funny. It, I think about the scripture of where your your heart, your treasure is. Your heart will be also. Does that speak to our nature when we are freely giving of grace and love, but we value our money more than that because we don't freely give that as well? I don't know. I was just I was thinking about that this week of the struggle that I have. Of do I do I value my money more than my love and my grace because it's it feels easier for me to give that than to. Dole out, you know, money. I don't know. It was yeah. it was a struggle this week because I was kind of process a bit of that conversation. Yeah. It kind of links to you know, uh, sort of your re- re- left and right here. Yeah. Sometimes I, my nature pulls me to this. If you're lazy, poverty, and that that's not right. And I, I know that's not true. But for some reason, my sinful nature wants to pull me to these ideas that my money is worth more than
0: my love and my grace. Thank you, Jeremy. Um. I think uh, one thing I heard you say that I think we always have to keep coming back to and that is that from a, from a Christian perspective everything is gifts right uh, even for me for example my what I, I think I have a strong work work ethic but my work ethic was a gift to me from my father and my grandfather and they taught me to have a good work ethic and it did not come to me because one day I thought I woke up and thought I'll think I'll be a virtuous human being by having a good work ethic. <laughs> it's that they taught me that, right? And it was a gift to me from my family. Um, you know, I've got a decent intellectual capacity, but that's not because one day I got up and I thought I think I'll work hard to have a good intellectual capacity. It's that one, I, I was given certain things in in the womb, and second, I had my a family that wanted to help me train my brain to do well with my brain. right? It's all gift and if we ever get to a place of where we forget that it's all gift, then I think we've failed to be Christian. <coughs> At the same time, um, we do have the Proverbs that do say laziness leads to poverty. There's consequences that come from it. Uh, we also have the notion that we have to discern what love entails rightfully because sometimes what goes by the name of love may actually be enabling behavior that is damaging to the other person, right? And so um, to always give to someone of whatever it is they may want is not love, right? So, for example, the early church, they said if someone comes to you and they need a place to stay, you give them a place to stay and you give them food for three days, and then you start figuring out, are you ready to participate in the community or not? And if they don't, they said, let them go, right? Um, and so that there's these practical sorts of questions about what love actually entails, a rigorous notion of love entails. Mm-hmm. And again, a local community can do that in ways that systems, uh, social systems of policy can't necessarily do, right? Um, again, that's not to say that social policy is unimportant, because it can be a great mechanism of equality, or a great mechanism of oppression. So, lots of nuance there that you pointed us to that's really important. Let's do one more, and very quickly, and then uh, we'll go to Laura. I just, one, uh,
2: something that jumped out at me from the board, um, and, and I don't really know what do with this, I think it's probably more of like Laura's part, um, but that the I think the real driver of the echoing chamber on each side is the word fear. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And I have a family member who I I love very deeply, uh, who is just very much in that echo chamber on the right. Um, And as I was just kind of thinking through what you have on the board, I think a lot of that is the fact that she lived in world war ii era and communism is a very different thing to her than it is to me and so there's real truth and government power um, that exists for her it's not something that i i could ever even really put myself into just because she had that experience and i think it's probably um, the same on both sides, that those experiences that they have in different generations and different cultures just create a fear that allows that echo chamber
0: to exist. Yeah, that's very helpful Elliot, thank you. And you know, I, I remember um, reading, hearing some stuff out of the conflict management people some years ago, and they were looking at these new brain science studies that talk about how, you know, fear is rooted in the, in the brain stem, apparently and then higher emotions are in the limbic system and rational thoughts in the prefrontal cortex is my layman's understanding of this stuff. And so if, fear, if one is in fear, you can't even work with higher emotions, much less rational thought, because you're working with self-preservation. And so when people are in fear, that's not the place where you can have constructive conversations about big ideas, right? And so, so that, that's a terribly important thing you point us to there that I think we have to be aware of. Thank you all.
4: I um, am amazed that you all can hear me and see me because I feel like I'm wrapped in bubble wrap (laughs) and I can't hear. (laughs) Today, I've been struggling with this cold all week and I'm surprised the older I get how long it takes me to kick a cold. And if I talk too long, I'll start coughing and I won't be able to stop and fluids will start spewing out of every (laughs) orifice in my head. (laughs) Um, but just uh, try to think through, and Lee and I have talked a lot over the last two weeks about some uh, just practical practices we could incorporate in our day-to-day lives. One is um, generosity, and um, and let me just begin by saying I don't, I don't, I don't corner the market in any of these things at all, at all. But um, The church I was raised in got in our face a little more than we do here at Otter Creek about what tithing means and what giving means and what sacrificial giving means. And I don't say that to find fault with Otter Creek at all. But um, I am appreciative that my preacher and the elders in my home congregation got down in my face about that because they impressed upon us that giving should hurt a little bit and that it involves some sacrifice. And it made it clear to me from a very early age that participating as a disciple of Jesus in the coming of the Kingdom is going to cost me something. And if I'm not aware of that, I may not be paying close enough attention. (laughs) I may not really actually be listening well enough. I really may not actually get it. Um, And so that was impressed upon me at an early age. So what I challenge you to do is if you don't know how much you give, if you give, you pay your bills, and and we're all, you know, some of us in here probably don't balance our bank (coughs) statements. That's the kind of church this is. That some of us don't have to balance our bank statements, right? Um, some of us do. Uh, regardless of where you are on that continuum, I want you to pull out your calculator and I want you to do some math and I want you to know what giving, what, what percentage of your gross income you're giving. And um, if you don't know, I want you to find out. That, that, that would be a practice I would challenge you uh, to do this week. And then after you have found out what percentage of your gross income you're giving, then you have a starting point. Then you have a baseline. And you can be deliberate about it or not. You can set goals or not. Um, but that's, in my mind, that's gotta be a starting point because I tend to give myself too great a benefit of the doubt and um, just like the kid who puts five dollars in the collection plate one Sunday out of the quarter and feels all, yay, I'm a great person. I think that I tend to pat myself on the back a little too freely and quickly and easily and conclude I'm a generous giver without doing the math. And so I challenge you to do the math on your generosity and go from there. Um, another thing I challenge you to do this week or just not this week but just in the coming in the coming weeks um, is seize opportunities to engage with people who are in a different financial situation than you are um, Some of you own your own companies and you employ people who are in a different situ- financial situation Some of you, are um, stay-at-home moms and the only time you're in proximity to someone who's in a different financial situation than you is when you're checking out at Kroger and you realize they can't pronounce the name of the college that's on your shirt and they mispronounce it and they ask you what is that? And you realize we are from two different we are from two different socioeconomic backgrounds. I challenge you to seize, any opportunity, create opportunities, look for opportunities to engage someone in a meaningful way who comes from a different socioeconomic background than you. And I challenge you to invest in some back and forth dialogue with that person so that an awareness, a greater awareness creeps into your consciousness that not everyone consumes the way we consume here at Otter Creek. And I don't mean to pick on Otter Creek, I really don't. Um, I was getting my hair cut about two weeks ago or four weeks ago. and You know how when they're cutting your hair, you women know this, I don't know if they do this to men. The woman always says, how are you doing on your products? Do you need any products today? (coughs) And for some reason that day I felt shame that I'd never bought products from this person. I don't know why. I felt shame about that. And so I thought, well, I'll buy product from her today. I bought a $42 bottle of hairspray. (laughs) And I came home. I came home and I thought, I was ashamed i've never bought product from her and now i'm ashamed that i've bought a 42 dollars bottle of hairspray and if you make minimum wage it takes you hours and hours to earn enough money to buy that bottle of hairspray you couldn't you wouldn't you couldn't possibly prioritize that in your weekly budget and i only know that if i'm in proximity with people that only That only stirs up a sense of discomfort in me if I'm in proximity with people who cannot conceive of spending $42 on a bottle of hairspray. So I encourage you to seize any opportunity you have uh, to engage someone in a different socioeconomic background. And then finally, payroll. Some of you, like I said, own your own companies Some of you don't. Some of you are just consumers, not just consumers. But we all shape what people are paid by our consumption patterns. Um, And some of us do it more directly than others because we are CEOs or CFOs or COOs at companies. And we can pay attention to what our frontline workers are making or not and we can pay attention to whether they can afford the health insurance we offer. We can pay attention to whether they can afford to add their own spouses and children to that policy or not. I challenge you, if you're in a position of power like that, a CEO, a CFO, a CEO, you own your own company, whatever, um, I challenge you to make yourself aware of what your frontline workers work and put it on your agenda to make sure they're getting fair wages and leave it there on your agenda until you have confirmed that they are making fair wages and if you are not in a position of power like that I encourage you in your consumption patterns to pay attention to what you're buying and what you're paying for it and how that contributes to someone else's paycheck and so it, it can be more laborious, and I certainly know it costs a heck of a lot more to buy stuff fair trade. It costs more. Um, but I challenge you just to become aware. If you still need to buy stuff, sometimes I still need, I need something for cheap. Sometimes I still do it. But <coughs> I, I encourage you to practice awareness. Um, become aware. Of what it costs to make something and whether what you're paying for it, how that that translates down to compensation for the worker who made that item. Ask some hard questions of yourself. And again, there too, just practice some awareness. Get real with yourself. So generosity, pull out your calculator. Proximity, engage people in different socioeconomic backgrounds. And then think about wages and payroll. And you are in a position of power, whether you own a company or not. And look for ways that you're contributing to other people's wages. That's all. Thank you so much.
0: Happy week.